Well, greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Seminary Unboxed, the official podcast of Wesley Biblical Seminary. I am Dr. Matt Ayers, the president of Wesley Biblical Seminary and the host of Seminary Unboxed. And of course, I have a special guest and author with us today, and that's Dr. Ken Collins. Uh, Dr. Collins, or as I'll call him Ken, <clears throat> he is an American theologian who was internationally recognized as a scholar in the field of historical theology who has an ecumenical heart, and who has produced a number of works in Christian spirituality to reach a broad and energetic following. And by the way, I am one of those energetic followers. Um, he is a popular and engaging speaker. Collins has given lectures in England, South Korea, Japan, Russia, Estonia, Costa Rica, Australia, and elsewhere. Some of his works have been translated into Russian, Portuguese, Korean, Estonian, and Chinese. Ken is a graduate of Princeton Seminary and Drew University, and he has written and edited more than 17 books and scores of scholarly articles. He currently serves as the professor of historical theology and Wesley studies at Asbury Theological Seminary. And so I've invited Ken here on Seminary Unbox to discuss today uh, mo mostly or mainly one thing, and that is his new book titled Jesus the Stranger, The Man from Galilee and the light of the world. And if there's time, I would also like to address the doctrine of entire sanctification and get Ken's version of, of Wesley's thinking about that doctrine. So, but let me say to you, Ken, welcome. It is a pleasure, an honor, and a privilege to have you today. Well, thank you very much, uh, Matt. I am glad to be here. Thank you. So, so Ken, this new book that, that's come out, Jesus the Stranger, the Man from Galilee and the Light of the World, published by Seedbed. Tell us about it, and in particular, explain for us, if you would, the title and the subtitle, Jesus the Stranger. Yes, uh, we begin with the title because uh, the reason I wrote the work is that the Jesus I see out there in American culture uh, bandied about in chat rooms, on Twitter, on Facebook, is a Jesus I don't recognize. Okay. Uh, and so uh, I knew that I had to write a book because of my engagement with the Gospels. And I wanted to bring forward Jesus of the Gospels, who is far more interesting and far more beautiful than the cultural stereotypes that are out there. Okay. So him as a stranger is in the sense the, one, the guy that you see out there in culture is a stranger to you. You don't know yes, that. I, I don't know that, Jesus. I you don't, don't know, know that, Jesus. And so uh, this book then is introducing the world around you to the Jesus that you know, and that is the Jesus of Scripture. The, right, the Jesus of the Gospels, uh, and a Jesus um, who is richly acquainted with suffering. Uh, and so the beauty of Christ uh, emerges uh, from his suffering. And so to really get uh, a rich appreciation for Jesus and the impact that he can have upon a human life, we're going to have to look at the suffering of Jesus very seriously. And so I know, Matt, that you mentioned the subtitle and your intuitions are right on target because the question becomes, you know, the man from Galilee, okay, the man from Galilee, why should I pay attention to this man from Galilee? He's a first century Jew. 
He's a man, uh, a common laborer, looks like any other Jew of the period. What's so special about him? And so in a real sense, the book is a narrative journey that's going to take us through the Gospels and to show us that transition from the man from Galilee to being recognized and celebrated and adored as the light of the world. So following up from that, a couple of things. So first is, I would ask, what's the main thing can you think our culture gets wrong about Jesus? So this book is a corrective, right? And so, so on, what, on what one we, level, yes, it is a corrective. So what, what do we get wrong when you see that Jesus out there on social media and in popular culture and you think that's not the guy? What is it about that portrayal that's, that's wrong? Okay, what we see manifested in the life of Jesus Christ, especially at, when we look at Golgotha, uh, is the love of God displayed uh, richly for all people from the highest to the lowest, uh, that the love of God is inclusive, embracing all people. All people are welcome uh, to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Jesus out there in our culture is a very partisan Jesus. It's the Jesus of a tribe, of a tribe. And, and usually it's an invitation to someone's particular politics. And that's not the Jesus of the Gospels. Very, very interesting. You know, I, I huh, living in Mississippi, um, a new person to Mississippi being from the Northeast um, and where I'm from, we don't encounter a whole where I'm from outside of Philadelphia. We didn't encounter much of the God and country culture. And then I began to see some of it like in Kentucky and, and Ohio and I see some of it here in Mississippi. Is that the kind of thing that you're referring to as the God and, God and country culture, the patriotism of the United States? And is that the sort of dynamic? Well, it comes from either the left or the right. Uh, and so there can be a very politicized leftist Jesus that's offered uh, and who is masquerading, you know, as the universal love of God, although is actually very tribal and partisan. And in the same way, along lines that you were just talking about, it can come from the right, you know, a God and country, American values kind of Jesus. Uh, you know, we have to be aware, um, and, and this is the scriptural perspective, that the only kingdom that's going to endure is the kingdom of God. Yes. All nations are fleeting. If we, in an idolatrous way, are celebrating a kind of nationalism as our highest loyalty, that's idolatry, okay? Right, right. And, and Jesus Christ is above that. I mean, I have lectured in Estonia and elsewhere. Uh, those folk are my brothers and sisters. They are my brothers and sisters, though we do not share the same nationality, okay? And so it's that kind of thing that I'm getting at, that Jesus Christ, the gospel, the universal love of God transcends political tribalisms, whether they're from the left or the right. Yes. That's so what I'm curious about then, and that's super helpful, is you talk about suffering, you know, and that's one common thing that all humanity has in common, of course. Um, and I what I'm what I gather from the book is that the importance of the humanity of Jesus. 
And I'll say that when I was serving in Haiti, their Christology is very heavy on the divinity of Christ. He's super, he's the Superman, you know, and it made it really hard uh, being a Wesleyan to kind of frame what I think of as the doctrine of entire sanctification to be Christ-like uh, because there was such an underemphasis on the humanity of Christ. And so um, in any case, why is Jesus's humanity important for us to remember specifically today in our, in our context? Yes, and I think the humanity is important not only for a balanced conception you know, of, of who Christ is, but I, th I think also it relates richly uh, to who we are as fellow human beings, as fellow human beings. I mean, in the church, we speak of the incarnation, that the logos became flesh, Emmanuel, God among us. And so uh, the identification with humanity is very important. And for Jesus of Nazareth, that identification uh, goes all the way to Golgotha, so that Jesus is having conversation with common criminals while he's dying. And so there is not a man nor woman whom he cannot touch. I mean, is a person a president of a nation? Well, Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, is someone despised and rejected? Uh, Jesus Christ knows your plight. Uh, because he was despised and rejected by men and women. And so this piece of the humanity of Christ is so very important, and we can get at that uh, through looking at the suffering of Christ. And we certainly, as human beings, knowing the human condition, uh, can appreciate that as well. There's one other thing I would say about suffering. Um, we, when lots of people think about the suffering of Christ, especially this time of year, as we're heading into, um, you know, Holy Week and then Easter, they, and especially given that, that famous movie, The Passion of Christ, they think largely of the physical suffering of Jesus of Nazareth. And of course, that is significant. However, I am convinced that from an examination of the Gospels, from being with the Gospels a long time and reflection and prayer uh, and theological examination, that the greatest suffering of all for Jesus was not physical. Uh, it was uh, psychological um, and it was even spiritual, psychological and spiritual suffering that he knew what it was to be despised, to be rejected, to be ostracized, to be slandered, to be ridiculed. He knew all of that richly. And so on a second level, this book is speaking into our culture today because our culture, given the instruments of social media, is engaging in all of this kind of um, uh, evil speaking, what, what John Wesley called evil speaking. Even Christians, you know, are using inappropriate language um, and, and are criticizing and engaging in slander towards their fellow Christians. And so this book speaks into that as well. That was the evil, and that's what it is. It's evil. That's the evil that Christ suffered. He knew what it was. He received it. He was despised and rejected by men and women. Wonderful. So 
Uh, you and I both can have a passion for this idea of holy love. Yeah. And holy love makes its way into the book. So you've talked about suffering. You've talked about his humanity, psychological suffering. And I think, by the way, that you're right about that, that his, his greater suffering was on that level, uh, if not equal, but more, probably more than his physical suffering. We see that in the garden in his prayer and sweating and the drops like blood. I think that that is a, an outward expression of that. And we see it at the cross in terms of spiritual suffering. There's this issue, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? How do we understand that? What kind of suffering is entailed there? Yes. So where then does holy love make its way into, into this book and our, our gospel presentation of Jesus? Yeah. Well, holy love, I mean, that bespeaks of, of who God is, that God is holy love. Scripture says God is love. Uh, and it doesn't say God is loving, though God is surely that. But it says that God is essentially, substantively love. And, and as God has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ, we can affirm precisely that, because in the Christian understanding of the Godhead, relationality is at the very heart of who God is. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so you have holy love, you know, at the heart of who God is, and that's who Jesus reveals the Father to be, uh, the God for us, um, uh, the God who seeks us, the God who suffers and is in our place bearing our burden uh, because God loves us so. Now, I use the language holy love because in our context today, if I just use the word love, uh, it'll be misunderstood. Uh, because people are going to fill in the content uh, of that word with so many different things. Love will then become desire. It could be lust. It could be what they like or, or prefer. Infatuation. It be, infatuation. It could be understood in a tribal way. Love is what my group likes or the group that I've identified with likes. And so in order to avoid all that, uh, we have the qualifier holy, that this is a special kind of love. This is distinct. It is a pure love. It is separate. It is not vulgar. Uh, it has nothing to do uh, with evil. It is utterly good. Uh, and this is who God is. And so uh, holy love uh, gets at that proper tension. Now, if we simply, on the other hand, stress holiness, Holiness, you know, as John Wesley understood it, is basically fleshed out in terms of separation and purity. But when we think of love, we think of communion, seeking communion and union. Right. And so right. if we simply focused on holiness, we'll be off in the corner by ourselves somewhere, looking at our purity separate from everyone else, and then we run the risk of Pharisaism, you know, that sort of thing. And so holiness needs to be in context uh, with love, just as love needs to be in a, in a tension uh, with holiness. It's never one without the other. It's holy love, and that keeps us properly focused, and it allows us the place that we can criticize 
some of the misunderstandings that are out there both in the church and in the culture today. Wonderful. Ken, from what I understand, this book is, is unlike any of the other books that you've written. That's true. As, as the shape, the nature of the genre, the narrative, the prose, the angles, all the different chapters, the characters. Can you speak, tell us a little bit about that. How is this book unlike you know, uh, the theology of John Wesley, you know, holy love and, and unlike the scripture way of salvation. And, uh, by the way, I just finished recently your biography of John Wesley, a real Christian and, uh, loved it so much that I gave it to my mom. I said, mom, you got to read this. And she read it in her travels back on an airplane from Jackson back to Florida. And then we've been gifting it uh, to some folks within our donor network. And so, Really enjoyed that book. But nonetheless, how is Jesus the Stranger unlike any of the other books that you've written? Well, I, although I've written a lot about John Wesley, in a sense, my work on John Wesley has always been about Jesus. Uh, because John Wesley, why I like John Wesley is that he is so focused on Jesus Christ and the Gospels that he wanted to bring forward all that's there in Scripture so that we could receive the grace of God in a rich and profound way. And I think Wesley is a wonderful mentor in that sense, someone who can help us get richly acquainted with Jesus Christ, but it's always been about Jesus. It's always been about how God is revealed in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. In some respects, this book has been a long train coming. I mean, I've been thinking about this for a long time, and there are lots of um, studies that I've done in the past, uh, insights, growth, graces that I have received along the way that all come together in this book. So I, I stepped back and brought it all together uh, to focus on the Gospels, to focus on Jesus Christ, and to... Um, celebrate uh, the gospel, especially uh, in the face of a very needy world. Wonderful. Wonderful. So let's, let's take that then for our last few minutes here in transition. And this is going to be, might be a tall order. How would you, shifting to entire sanctification and what it is, you know, in, in so many words, you know, not having hours to lecture as you usually do, and I wish that we had, how would you define it? How can we, our, our average listener, a lay person, this is seminary unboxed, right? So we're trying to make the content of theology, biblical studies that we explore in the classroom at great depth available and accessible to, you know, the average person out there on the street. How would you describe entire sanctification? What is it? And what isn't it? Okay. Well, let me uh, start out, Matt, by giving a little background. Some start out with some very basics, because I have to make sure that we're on the same page. And I mean, I do this for my seminary classes as well. I just have to make sure we're on the same page. And so for our audience, I would have them ask themselves the question, what is salvation? What does it mean to be redeemed? Uh, and if we ask that question, I think uh, we could express it, and here I can drop back to the book, uh, Jesus Stranger in chapter 13, that when Jesus has this dialogue with the uh, 
you know, young religious leader who's inquisitive, you know, what's the greatest commandment of all? Uh, and out of that discussion, it comes the love of God, the love of God and the love of neighbor. Uh, so to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy mind, all thy soul, all thy strength, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. I mean, that's the point of it all. That's what it's all about. Now, we can express that in another way uh, and, and use the language of holy love and say that what is salvation? Salvation is, we can speak about it first in terms of freedom from, and then we can speak about it in terms of freedom to, both a negative way and a positive way. In a negative way, salvation is freedom from what? It's freedom from the guilt of sin from the guilt of sin. And we think about that in terms of justification, the forgiveness of those sins that are past. How many people uh, who are listening to us today woke up with a load of guilt on their back and they're carrying it around the whole day and they'll go to bed with it tonight and they'll fall asleep with it. I mean, that doesn't have to be uh, because we are forgiven. We are forgiven in Jesus Christ. Uh, and so the first liberty of the gospel, and by the way, the world has it wrong. The gospel is all about freedom. It's about freedom and it's about liberty. First, it's freedom from the guilt of sin. Then secondly, it is freedom from the power or dominion of sin. Okay, And that's what Wesley referred to as the new birth or regeneration. You can take a look at his sermon, The Marks of New Birth, Faith, Hope, and Love freedom from the power and dominion of sin. Now watch this. Um, you know, many will get into the pulpit on this Sunday morning and they will, here's what they will preach. Um, God loves you. Christ died for your sins. God loves you just as you are. There is the forgiveness of sins. God forgives you. And then they will sit down. And in one respect, uh, you know, that's, that's wonderful proclamation, you know, because it's basically proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, freedom from the guilt of sin. But that is not good news from those who are sitting in the congregation and who know they are under the power and dominion of sin and they are near despair. Uh, and they need to be given a message of hope. And that message of hope is the second freedom of the gospel, which is freedom from the power and dominion of sin, even the new birth, uh, so that we can be free from those things that used to enslave us, uh, that we can be set free from that, um, from committing sin, willful sins of omission, commission, actual sins, that sort of thing. Okay. However, once we talk about that, uh, we're not done with the sin problem uh, because the sin comes in two forms. It comes in the form of actual sins, plural, the kinds of sins we commit in thought, word, and deed of omission and commission. But sin also comes in terms of the carnal nature, inbred sin, a heart bent towards backsliding. Scripture talks about this very clearly. Yeah, this is and where so, Paul talks about the flesh, right, in Romans. Right, the flesh, that's right, the carnal mind, the carnal nature, exactly. And Wesley called it inbred sin. 
Entire sanctification relates to that. In other words, entire sanctification is going to be freedom from the being of sin, the being of sin, even the carnal nature. Okay, so if you take a look at two key sermons that Wesley published, and by the way, they're beyond the 44, so that's why we need to be reading the 52, 53, or the 60 of my own edition and with Jason Vickers uh, on sin and believers and repentance of believers. It, Wesley lays it out so very careful. The guilt is one thing, the power yet another, and then there is the being of sin. We're free from the guilt of sin in terms of justification. We are free from the power or dominion of sin in terms of a new birth. We are free from the being of sin in terms of entire sanctification. Now, that is simply to express it negatively. We must also express this positively. And so here, I'm going to begin with sanctification. When does sanctification begin? Well, at the new birth. The new birth, even though Wesley did not use this specific language of initial sanctification, it is basically synonymous with language that he did in fact use. In other words, the new birth or regeneration, okay? And so that is the beginning of holiness. And so when we're talking about salvation, and this is very important, I, I've had some students in my class define salvation apart from holiness, and I've, I've shot back, it doesn't compute, because holiness and forgiveness is the very substance of what it means to be redeemed. And so we actually become holy by the Holy Spirit tabernacling in our hearts by means of the graces of the new birth. And so that is the beginning of sanctification that there's the transition from being a sinner to becoming initially holy, to becoming a saint, if you will, uh, then there will be, in a second way, the process of sanctification changes in degree, a little more than what, you know, of what already was. So we become more holy, more patient, more kind, the fruit of the spirit increases, okay? That the process of sanctification is a change in degree. Initial sanctification is not a change in degree. This is important. It's not a little more of what already was because it is the transition from being a sinner to being a child of God, from being sinful to becoming holy. That is a qualitative difference and only God can make a soul holy. This is a divine supernatural work. It's not a thing of nature. No imagine, no education, no moral, moral reform project will bring it into place. It is the reception of a supernatural grace whereby the Holy Spirit uh, makes us holy. And so that's a qualitative change. It is something new, something new. It's not a change in degree. It's not a little of what, a little more of what already was. So that's important to see. Right. Which, yeah, sorry, go ahead. And yep. then thirdly, because now we're speaking positively, we're talking about entire sanctification, okay? And this is the freedom, and it is a freedom, the freedom to love God and our neighbor as we ought, the freedom to love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, 
with a purity uh, that was lacking before. So entire sanctification, just like the new birth, is not a change in degree. This is where a lot of people go wrong. They think, well, you know, it's the process of sanctification and it's just the last degree. It's the last stop. No, it's not a little more of what already was. It's something new because it's the transition from impurity to purity. And that is similar to the transition of being a sinner to being made holy uh, for the first time. And so both the new birth and entire sanctification are qualitative changes of grace. They are in the middle is the process of sanctification, which would be a change in degree. But simply put, positively speaking, entire sanctification is perfect love. It's love, holy love reigning in our hearts without a rival. It's loving God and our neighbor as ourselves. It's being that free that we're able to do that, love God and our neighbor as ourselves. I know that there are various views, differing views. Ken, where would you put baptism of the Holy Spirit? Traditionally, it's on regeneration, new birth, but there have been some Wesleyans, or at least followers of Wesley, who said, no, baptism of the Holy Spirit would be entire sanctification, kind of a second subsequent work. Ken, what do you think? Yeah, I think baptism language um, has to do with beginnings, uh, that when one comes to Christ, uh, one publicly identifies with Christ by a baptism in the church. Uh, when we think of um, the birthday of the church, we think of Pentecost, okay? right. and right. there is the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Uh, and so I, and, and, and Wesley argues this as well, he sees um, uh, this baptism language associated with the new birth, with regeneration, with initial sanctification. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a role for the Holy Spirit in terms of assurance with respect to entire sanctification. There right. is. Right. There is. Uh, but what I have argued, and I've looked at this very carefully, is that just as the Holy Spirit witnesses uh, to our new birth and justification, you know, and as Paul talked about it in Romans 8.16, the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are, a, you know, the children of God, in a parallel way, uh, the Holy Spirit gives us assurance and, and bears witness to us that our hearts are pure, that we are entirely sanctified. So there is a role for the Holy Spirit, uh, both in terms of the new birth and entire sanctification with respect to the whole matter of assurance, that we are assured that we're a child of God, that we are assured uh, that we are entirely sanctified. One thing that we have to be careful about in this area, and, and, and it calls for caution, is that there are some theologies out there that basically empty out the new birth and take all those characteristics and move them up to entire sanctification. Uh, and so, for example, uh, they will move adoption over to entire sanctification. Uh, they will move even freedom from the power and dominion of sin in some people's minds to entire sanctification, 
But you know, and I know, because we've read Wesley's sermons, that freedom from the power and dominion of sin, as Wesley argues in the marks of the new birth and the great privilege of those that are born of God, has to do with the new birth, not right. with entire sanctification. That's regeneration. Entire, yeah. yeah, entire sanctification has to do with the being of sin, inbred sin, the carnal nature, okay? And so we have to be careful. Uh, everything in its proper place. Uh, we don't want to empty out the new birth and move all of those characteristics and traits up to entire sanctification. Because if we do, here's what will happen. We basically will leave people in the ongoing power and dominion of sin, but they won't be troubled because they'll say, hey, I'm not entirely sanctified. Right. right. And we want to avoid that mistake. Yeah, and I think they, uh, there's a mistake that goes the other way, too, and that is making entire sanctification equivalent with regeneration. And maybe that's the same way of saying it, just coming from a different angle. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. This has been so rich and helpful. I, I, I would like to say this. I, I kind of wanted to close, come back with Jesus the stranger and say, okay. ask the question, what's the big lesson? What's the big lesson for pastors, churches today uh, that they'll get from Jesus the stranger? The big takeaway that if we come to know God is revealed in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in a rich way, if we see that, that holy love and understand, as Wesley understood, that Christ died for me, even me, that love is wonderfully transformative will never be the same again. We can never be the same again. Now, I'm not starting to sound like, like a Calvinist, but it's so transformative uh, that when we see that love and we know that it is this love that is behind the creation of this glorious universe that we're a part of. I, I can't help but think of, uh, you know, the moral influence theory of atonement and Peter Abelard and how the, the holy love, I don't know that he called it holy, but the love of God that melts the icy heart of the believer. And um, as you know, I, I think you know this, but I'm finishing up now uh, the first draft of a manuscript for a book on the Holy Spirit. And I'm talking about uh, this very dynamic and yeah, how yeah. our hearts are ironclad and they're hard and they've been hardened by the deception that God is not loving and God is not trustworthy. And the way that I put it as relates to the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit, by pointing to Jesus, by glorifying Jesus, yes. by fixing our attention on Jesus, shining that spotlight on Jesus, he's dispelling that deception and that lie going all the way back to Genesis 3 and demonstrating, Jesus is demonstrating to us that he is loving and he is trustworthy. And the dispel of that lie begins to break the chains on our heart our hearts begin to soften as we can we can receive and actualize that message based on the prevenient grace of God. That's right. And that, that is a, a, a proper emphasis because when we think about the atonement, we have to remember atonement has to do with two parties, not with just one. Right. The Godwood side is important to be sure. And Wesley articulated that very carefully in terms of Anselm and penal substitution theories, et cetera, focusing on the justice of God. And that is very important. But we also have to pay attention to the humanwood side, as you were just suggesting there, 
and, and through the work of Abelard and others, because the anger and even at times the hatred of sinners for God yeah. has to be overcome. Right. There's going to be reconciliation. We have to acknowledge that forthrightly. Yes. Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Collins, thank you so much. Thank you so much for right. your, your contribution, your, your scholarly work and taking time with us today. Yes. And uh, we'll be promoting your book, Jesus, the Stranger. And readers, you can get that on Amazon.com as well as on Seedbed's website. So you know that you have our support and our love and our prayers from Wesley Biblical Seminary. And for our listenership, uh, we'll see you next time on Seminary Unboxed. Thank you.